Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolanski. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we joined in conversation by Professor Monica Singer. Hi Monica, it's great for you to join us. Hey Barry, thank you for the invite. I'm very excited to be here. Thank it's you. Great to have you here. And I'm joined as well by my co-host, Karen Gammy. Hi Karen. Hey Prof. Hi everyone. Thanks for listening. Great to have you all today. So today we're talking to Monica, and Monica is a chartered accountant or CA. She's a Wits University alumnus. Uh, there are two phrases that characterize her interesting and significant career, and these are anti-corruption and digital transformation. There are probably others, but those two came out when I read her biography. Uh, Monica came to South Africa from her native Uruguay in the late 1980s and qualified as a chartered accountant. She then joined the World Bank as an advisor, and she explored ways to eliminate fraud and corruption in countries receiving funds from the World Bank. In the mid-1990s, she became the chief executive officer of Strait, and Strait was a company that was created to digitize the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, the JSE, uh, which until then had been completely paper-based. This project had huge success and she drove it to completion, turning this very old legacy stock exchange into one of the best in the world. The World Economic Forum recognized South Africa as having one of the top three most progressive central securities depositories in the world in 2012. And this was largely due to the work that Strait and Monica did. In 2015, she read about blockchain and Bitcoin and realized, so her biography says, that this was what she had always been looking for. It was a way to eliminate corruption and fraud in financial and securities markets. When she couldn't convince the Board of Strait to adopt blockchain, she decided to leave her top position in an organization she had built over 19 years and became an evangelist for blockchain. This is what she now does as a professor at the University of Johannesburg, as an ambassador of a fintech called Consys, which is one of the leading international blockchain companies, and in dozens of other ways. She's also a board member of the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants. Monica, in keeping with our relay race metaphor, 
in which we talk about receiving a baton. Let's talk about how you received your baton. Uh, you came to South Africa in the 1980s. Reading articles about you, it's clear that you had a deep desire to improve the world. You joined the World Bank on a mission to fight corruption in world financial systems. And in those very early days before straight and blockchain, who were your heroes and role models? So first, I just want to add that my, actually my first job before the World Bank was the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants. Yes. I was the technical director for eight years because I was fascinated by the fact that in South Africa, the judicial system is so strong that if you wrote audits and accounting standards, the profession was actually going to comply with the standards. I come from South America where the rule of law is not that clear. And therefore, I was in, I actually fell in love with the fact that you could even go to the magistrate's court in South Africa and argue that if a, a traffic fine was incorrectly given to you, you could argue that it should be um, rescinded, which is something that you would never be able to do in any South American country. So, so that's where my passion started to realize that when the rule of law works, then this um, the people can flourish because there's trust, as opposed to the system becoming so corrupt that the only way that you're going to get out of jail, for example, is if you pay bribes or you have the best lawyer. Yeah. Um, so um, when you ask me about role models, it's quite interesting what I'm going to tell you is that um, I come from a very dysfunctional family with a lot of pain in my childhood. And the reason why I think I survived what I went through is because I, um, I read Viktor Frankl's book when I was a very young girl. And I don't know if you remember, uh, you read the book, but Viktor Frankl was a survivor of Auschwitz and many yes. other camps. He survived five years, okay? And he, uh, he was a very famous psychiatrist before he was put in the camps. And he survived because he kept on imagining that he was going to come out and that he wasn't going to accept that as a reality. So I kept on saying if, my, if I had to, as I was growing up and I had some tough moments in my life, I kept on saying, if Viktor Frankl survived Auschwitz, I can survive this. I'm not going to accept that this is going to be my reality. And I'm going to come out of this one day and I'm going to make the world a better place because clearly the family that I was born into it was full of pain and therefore there has to be another way in the world to take the pain away from these people that become so dysfunctional that they end up damaging each other. So that's why at 21, when I got, uh, became 21 years old, I was able to then get a passport. I ran away from home. So that's how I got to South Africa. Um, um, so I ran away with my boyfriend <laughs> from Uruguay. <laughs> we came here in, to South Africa. His mom lived here. So that's why he chose South Africa. But little did I know that this country was a, a terrible place in 1983 um, to have faced what I faced coming from a little village, because Uruguay is a little tiny country, three million people, really, it's like a small village, everybody knows each other. So imagine coming from a country that everybody loves each other and everybody's like chill, coming to South Africa in 1983 with this terrible apartheid where everybody hated each other, because it wasn't just black and white, it was English with Africans, Hindu with uh, Muslim, like 
nine different tribes of um, different tribes from uh, you know from uh, African tribes. I thought, people, really, what's going on here? You know. So, so for me, it was like very traumatic experience. But once again, it, you know, Victor Frankl, the same concept. And then, you know, the other motto that I always have is, if life throws lemons, I make lemonade. And in my survival mode, I, I studied and, and I became a chartered accountant. And even though I could hardly speak English, my I never felt an exam at which part-time, I want to add, I went to study at night when you could still study at night. Uh, the courses have become so complex that now you cannot really study uh, at night at which for, to become a chartered accountant. But I did it. I worked in the day, I worked, and I went to university at night, and I never felt any exam. So it was just because of the fear that I had to pay for my own exam, of my own education, and because of the fear of not surviving, of, of having to go back home. Um, and that was the last thing I wanted to do. So definitely, um, so, so certain books were my heroes. Uh, and also, you won't believe this, but I have to tell you that as a child, the other thing that got me through a very dysfunctional family was watching Disney movies. Because if mm. you think about it, in Disney movies, they, the hero, it could be a male or a female, the hero always survives. The hero always finds a way to, to defeat evil. And, and I always thought, that's it, eh? I'm going to do this. Whatever it takes, I can do this. I can be the heroine and I can beat the, the evil. And the evil was really the, the dysfunctional situation I was having to confront every day. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so the, uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but really, yeah. it, it's like it's not a person, as you can see, because I think from the moment I was very young, human beings disappointed me. So I was able to cope by learning from people that had survived the very difficult cir circumstances, and if they could survive, I could do too, you know. And then the other one was really Anne Frank when she ends her diary saying, "People are good." People are good. So imagine that after what she went through, she still concludes people are good. So I had to convince myself that if she could see the good in people, I could see the good in my family too. And that I had to learn to forgive them one day when I was enough, um, when I was whole. I needed to become whole in order to forgive. So it was a massive journey to heal um, such a very difficult experience. I can imagine. And I think it. It kind of really says a lot to to the human spirit and how people uh, cope with adversity, mm. and uh, the fact that you were inspired by uh, by books by people who wrote things. Mm. So um, to to kind of fast forward a bit and to look at your first big challenge. Oh well, probably one of many challenges. But one of your first big professional challenges uh, was um, around straight. And straight, I um, previously mentioned, was about digital transformation. And everyone's talking about it now. So this whole narrative of the fourth industrial revolution is about digital transformation. But And more than 20 years ago, uh, this was very much ahead of the curve. So um, if you look at an old respected institution like the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, 
and to make it uh, digital was way ahead of what what was happening in digitization. So could you just give us a before and after picture of the stock exchange in terms of uh, what it was like before straight got going and what it was like once straight got up to speed? How did it change? So just imagine that uh, before I started working uh, in this project, the the trades uh, on the JC were maximum, maximum a day, 4,000 trades a day, 4,000 trades. Why? Because when the trading happened, the back office had to settle, and settle meant writing a sheer certificate, writing a piece of paper with the name of the new owner, having the certificate delivered to the new owner. And the old owner had to rescind the share certificate with a CM42, a form that had to be signed. And then the payment had to be done by check. And therefore, you had all these scooters running around town delivering share certificates and checks. Imagine every time there was a, an accident or a hijack or the share certificates got lost in the, in the transit. So it got to a stage that uh, foreign investors did not want to buy shares in the stock exchange because the, the risk of not becoming the owner of the shares had become so huge that nobody wanted to touch us. Then there was a, a survey done of all the stock markets in the world, and it categorized, when I, in 1996 when I joined Strait, that it categorized South Africa as the worst emerging market for operational and safekeeping risk. So when I saw that, and because I am Joanna Bark that wants to go and save the world, and you have to understand that I've got an absolute passion for South Africa because this country not only made me, it adopted me, it gave me so much joy and so much happiness that I thought, if this is what people are saying about South Africa and I've got the courage to make a difference, I'm going to take this job. And I have to tell you, when I was offered the job, I thought that the CEO of the Stock Exchange at that time, Roy Anderson, had lost his marbles because he says, you can do this. And I was like, why? You know, why should I be able to do this? I'm an accountant. We are accountants. We don't know absolutely nothing about technology, about um, project management, about um, even the stock exchange. You don't really get trained about how the stock exchange works to be an accountant. We're just real bookkeepers in a nutshell. Mm. So, and he says, no, you've got the courage because is going, you're going to confront a lot of people that are going to fight you. And I know that you have got the courage to do this. And it's true. The one thing that I have because of my survival ability is that I, I, if I believe that something is going to be improve the life of people, I, I'm not scared. You know, I'm like, yeah. So, so and then the other thing I, I am good at is to never want to be the owner of the truth. So what I did is I surrounded myself with the best people that I could find, mm -hmm. and I admitted I didn't know anything. So then this incredible team members, you know, from the from my chairman, Bobby Johnston, to then Russell Lapshaw when he became the CEO, to my whole team at Strait, it was really the most capable people at that time that I could bring together to get them to help me build this. I was just the one that had really the, 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 the courage to go out to meetings when these meetings were horrific and everybody was trying to backstab me and, 
and you don't understand the money that was spent to try to get me fired. And they couldn't, mm. because every time that they tried to prove that I was doing something wrong, they couldn't. You know, the, 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 the market will pay consultants to write reports about how badly I'm running the project, you know, and the consultants never even spoke to me, presented a report that cost millions, and it was absolute nonsense. So it was so easy to the bank, but imagine the, how, how uh, draining it was on me, the fact that every time I had to fight the, the establishment that kept on saying, for a hundred years we've been doing this, who do you think you are, little you? And here comes, you know, the dominion, the, the fact that I was a woman, the fact that mm. I speak with an accent, the fact that I'm not really South African. I don't speak Afrikaans, so people will speak Afrikaans in meetings to try to make sure that I was confused. Meaning yep. there were many, many things that were happening at the same time because change was too disruptive. Remember, we, we eliminated the shit certificates, we eliminated the checks. We went from an open outcry system where people were screaming at each other in the, on the floor and writing on a blackboard to totally electronic trading and settlement, seamless. And we then, after 10 years of, of this project that was very hard, South Africa became the top financial market in the world. If you have a look at the World Economic Forum, we were categorized in the top three because of the standards that we implemented, the, the risk management um, scenarios, to the extent that on, on, in, on, in 2008, when the financial crisis happened, I don't know if you remember, Barry, that many stock exchanges closed down because of the fear of the, yeah. you know, the systemic risk that was taking place. And, and the JC didn't have to close down because we had established risk management principles that were able to cope with preventing systemic risk on the market. So, so it was really an amazing story, but trust me, it needed someone like me, you know, that, that I, can you see that I, because of where I came from, you know, what, it, you know, if you can uh, overcome your parents and that authority mm -hmm. that they have over you, why would I be scared of the financial markets? <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, just to say, this sounds so spicy. Like, it sounds like an HBO TV show with, like, <laughs> underhanded deals and, like, people trying to get you out. Like, my mm. gosh, <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Um, and so you sort of, like, very loosely kind of alluded to the challenges you were facing. But I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about, like, the specific challenges you faced when you were setting up straight, uh, especially, like, technologically, and then also as a leader who happened to be a woman. Well, imagine that, um, I'm going to tell you the story, but I, I joined first uh, the JSC because the JSC wanted the, to be the owner of the project. And they wanted me to use BDA, the broker-dealer accounting system, that at that time, that technology was already obsolete. And I said, no. So imagine that I go to, I'm now in the exco of the JSC, and I refuse to use their technology that they think was unbelievable. So my relationship with the head of IT was not great, as you can imagine, and the rest of the team was not great. So I had to carry on. So eventually, um, the JC ran out of money to run this project. So the project became owned 50% by the JC, 50% by the banks. So, um, so now, once again, you know, I had to fight now the banks and the JC. So what really helped, I must I always say that what really helped me not to be fired was that I had what is called a sponsor. What is a sponsor? A sponsor is someone that is very uh, dominant in the in the board, 
that will have your back. So my chairman, Bobby Johnston, he was my sponsor. He protected me. And Russell, Russell would have killed to protect me. Look, he would not protect me. You know what I mean? Like if I messed up, I was in trouble. But as long as I was delivering, he would protect me from the forces that was trying to um, to get rid of me because they didn't like change. You know, when, when change was irrational, uh, the arguments were irrational. I, I was very protected. Um, to, to just explain to people who might not remember, but the um, head of the stock exchange was Russell Lobsher. That's the Russell yes. Yes. you're speaking about. Yeah, and, and he's very strong, very yeah. courageous also. You know, he, he, he was like me, you know, he had no qualms in, in telling people to get lost, you know, if they were talking rubbish, yeah. you know. So I needed someone like that because the truth be told, a, a, a woman on her own, she hasn't got the, the network, you know, you know, I don't play golf, I don't go out for drinks, I don't smoke cigars, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that network, okay, that the, the old boys club has, it's key to convince people because many of the decisions are taken outside of the board meeting. So you need someone who's going to go and have a play of, you know, a game of golf to have a chat to say, Jesus, you know, this is not that bad, you know, and then come to the board meeting and then they agree. So that's the reality, you know, change doesn't happen very easily, especially remember this project affected the listed companies, the brokers, the banks, the, the stock exchange, the, the central bank, uh, the investors, it was massive. Um, mm. And many legislations, we had to amend so many legislations. And, and it was amazing because the parliamentarians were totally behind me. So they changed all the law in one year, which is unheard of that so many pieces of legislation got amended so quickly. So to tell you the truth, the, the technology was ready, the law was ready, the marketing was ready. What was not ready was the people, you know, mm -hmm. they were like still fighting to, um, to prevent this. And then, of course, once you have it in place, everybody will say, I always mm -hmm. defended you. I always <laughs> knew you were going to Claiming. cheat this. Yeah. yeah. They claim the, the you know, which is fine because that's the other thing that helps. Being a woman, we tend not to have so much ego. So we don't care if everybody wants to take the, 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 the credit. We just want the, the job to get done, you know? Yeah. So I think that also helped. And also it helped that I'm very, um, I love people. I really love people. So if you speak to my staff members, you will see that I, I love them as my family. So maybe that's why in 2017, I got the, the I don't know if you know that I was the first person in the country to win the, the, the Conscience Company Award which um, is given to anybody that shows that uh, I apply the, the principle of people, planet, and then profits first. And that's how I ran straight. You know, for me, the people were the, the, not only the staff, but the community. We did a lot of incredible work to, uh, in various communities uh, because I kept on saying, if I'm so blessed with all the things that we do in at Straight, Straight became very uh, strong financially, uh, and I thought, Let's help others, you know, that cannot help themselves. So we 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 created charities. We work for charities. So part of the time that we had to spend um, together as a team was always in helping others, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's a. I mean, there there are like so many lessons in that. Um, I just have to say that I, through the years, I've met a lot of the 
techies who worked at Strait, and you're dead right. They loved you. They loved working with you. So you were a very popular boss amongst the people at the coalface. Um, but the the uh, point that you make, and I've uh, recently written some articles on digital transformation, and the the biggest problem, the biggest difficulty in transforming organizations digitally is really around the people issues, the change management. Yeah. And it's not about technology, it's not about no. the nuts and bolts, yeah. it's about bringing people with you. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're describing. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you are really explaining what is probably in the textbook before the textbook was written yeah. in terms of the difficulties around digital transformation. Yeah. Um, could we move on a bit? So I'm, I'm kind of really, um, and it was a great success and you could have stayed there in, in a difficult but a relatively secure position uh, running straight forever, I guess. But you, um, something changed and you uh, began to, uh, to look at uh, something else. Um, can you talk about um, something happened in 2015? Uh, you read about blockchain and Bitcoin. And uh, what was it that you read and what excited you about these new technologies, these new approaches? So when I was running straight, we kept on asking, how can we improve? So one of the biggest gripes by the listed companies was that they could never get real-time information as to who's buying and selling their shares. And as you know, that is critical because if there's a hostile takeover, they need to know. But we couldn't provide that information because the way we built straight was to allow intermediaries upon intermediaries upon intermediaries. So all these intermediaries will have a part of the register of shareholders and they would hide the name of the investor. So it was very difficult to get to the bottom as to what was really happening. And then the other thing we couldn't do, the investors, if they were dealing with multiple brokers or banks, they couldn't get a big picture, real-time information of their uh, positions. And as you know, um, for many years, we, we, the, the time between trading and settlement was five days, which was considered you know, practice, you know, market practice, and then we um, reduce it to three days, and today it's still three days. So between trading and settlement, it takes three days. Why? Because when we built straight, it was the best thing we could do, but it's still, if you think about it, it's not good enough, three days. So then I kept on saying, how do I speed up? How do I go from the buyer to the seller? How do I give the issuer the complete register real time? And every time I wanted to achieve it, I couldn't, I couldn't because the vested interests were too strong, okay? Because it would mean making some parties obsolete. So then in 2015, I attend a conference and someone mentions Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper creating Bitcoin. So I get home and I Google it and you can Google it and immediately you can print it and I read the paper. And, and I promise you, Barry, I started crying because mm -hmm. I thought, who writes this? Like, if, you know, like Einstein says, you need a different level of consciousness to resolve a problem. You cannot resolve it with the same consciousness that, that you create the problem. So 
that's why I realized I didn't have the consciousness to create a solution because I was so involved in the concept of centralized registers, intermediaries, trusting the central banks, trusting the bank, etc., etc. That's the way I had been raised and educated at university that I couldn't see that there was another paradigm. So then this person, which we don't know who he or she or they are, with a pseudonymous called Satoshi Nakamoto, writes his paper on, 2000, on, the, on, the, on 2008, on the 31st of October in Halloween, releases the paper to the world and says, guys, we have missed up the world and the only way to prevent financial crises is in this following way. And that's when I said, that's exactly it. And you know what it is? Instead of centralizing the data, the data gets decentralized. So that, imagine that the general ledgers are recorded at the same time between all the parties in the transaction. So if you have a buyer and a seller, the auditor, the bank, the taxman, the whoever you want part of the transaction, everybody gets the ledger at the same time. And it's real time. And not only that, it's a ledger that is in, is in the internet of value. So it's the internet. It's not a mainframe. It's not swift messages. It's not silos. It's no world gardens. It's an open ledger in the internet. And it can be situated in any country in the world. So you don't have the problem that there's going to be an earthquake in Chile that you need a mainframe, uh, you know, set up for just in case, you know, business continuity sitting in Florida, in Tampa, for example, like it's the case today. So here you've got the internet, you've got a ledger that nobody can amend, it's immutable, it keeps the complete order trail, and then it's digital. And then the final thing that Satoshi says, we will put a mathematical formula so none of the parties can collude and cheat. And I thought, wow. That's, you know, the one thing you learn in Auditing 101 is that when there's collusion, you can be the best auditor in the world, but if, you're in, if your internal controls has not, um, are not strong enough, then you never pick up that there's fraud. And that's why, for example, you've got the frauds of VBS, the bank, or Steinhoff. When you start scratching what happened, it was that the collusion inside the management team that was running the company we're all colluding to commit the fraud. And that is something the auditors cannot pick up. So then Satoshi says, never again I'm going to allow anybody to collude because this formula, this cryptography, this formula that keeps on changing depending on the circumstances to make it stronger, will prevent the cheating. So I thought, then the trust transfers from people, the trust transfers to the computer. The trust gets democratized. Everybody but no one is um, the owner of the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? We all yeah, own yeah. the truth, and on top of that, the mathematical formula will test if any of us are trying to cheat. Yeah. So I thought, that's it. That, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life, because as an auditor and as a technical director of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, it, it killed me every time I saw how frauds were committed and we as auditors couldn't pick it up. Then I work for the World Bank and I find that the money the World Bank is giving to countries, they don't go for the projects that were meant to go, they go to the pockets of corrupted politicians. I thought, how can this be happening? It's like, 
guys, really, we're feeding the corruption here. <laughs> so, so, and now you do understand why the World Bank has embraced blockchain, because they will be able to track exactly where the money goes. Exactly. Because every time any disbursements is made, the World Bank gets the ledger real time, the country that gets the money gets the ledger real time. The parties involved in building, let's say, they build a, a, a school, get the ledger at the same time. So nobody can cheat. And you don't need the intermediaries. The money can go straight from the World Bank to building the houses or the school or the airports or whatever. And, and, the, and the ledger is immutable. And it will track if someone's trying to, to cheat or, or amend this ledger, which you can't. Mm. So, and this is the internet. So imagine how simple and how cheap it is because then you can give it to poor farmers um, planting um, produce so that they can track a supply chain to, um, you know, of their own produce until it gets to the retail and the retail sells it. We have solutions that the, 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 the farmers are getting paid real time when the produce gets sold at the till. And they can see the whole thing because the supply chain tracks every single step in just a very simple mobile device. You don't need any fancy nothing. So, so that's why blockchain is a massive game changer. And I thought, wow, that's what I want. I want to go and help the world see that everything we have created from the time double entry, general entries were created 500 years ago, we have never come out of that paradigm. And now for the first time in the history of humankind, we will be able to build a world where Corruption is minimized, I'm not saying disappears, but minimized because there's going to be tools that will make all these transactions totally transparent. You know, like, as you know, the terrible things that have been happening in South Africa with the PPE funding or the UIF funding, that should never happen if you actually, every single disbursement gets recorded in the blockchain and everybody can access through the cell phone a website that shows where the money went. Imagine. Yeah. Real time. It's amazing. It's, you know what's great? It's like this aha slash light bulb moment that you're talking about. Like I felt the exact same way mm. when I read the white paper and I was just like, mm. oh my gosh, like this is absolutely it. It is. <laughs> it. I, it resonates a lot with me. Um, yeah. So I think like in addition to, to the word blockchain, I think the way you described it, obviously, like it's just being this uh, technologically advanced, uh, like general ledger is really great. Um, but I know that there are lots of folks who sometimes conflate the idea of blockchain with the idea of, of Bitcoin. And then there's also people who are like, oh, but what actually is Bitcoin? Is it like an asset? Is it a medium of exchange? Like, what is it? So in your experience, like how would you distinguish between these two uh, different things, blockchain and Bitcoin? Well, if you think about it, the, the paper that uh, Satoshi wrote was to create a universal medium of exchange. Okay. So, um, and a store of value, because remember, there's only 21 million Bitcoins. And therefore, the fact that it's uh, scarce, the whole idea was to make Bitcoin like gold that is scarce and therefore it could become a store of value. So it didn't work out as a medium of exchange as people would want to, it still might, have, might happen, but it hasn't happened yet. But just remember that it created this, as you said, the hard moment to say, wait a second. So if this blockchain technology can be used for a currency, what if we use this technology for any other um, industry that requires this type of functionality? 
And then the world created in the last year, they woke up to the fact that Bitcoin is not a, a medium of exchange. So I don't know if you heard the concept of stable coins. So what is a stable coin? A stable coin is like Bitcoin, okay? It's a, it's a cryptocurrency, but it's, back, it's collateralized one-to-one -one with something. So it could be collateralized with fiat, which is the currency that the central banks issued, or collateralized with uh, real assets like diamonds or gold, or collateralized for other cryptocurrencies. So it has incredible functionality and um, um, flexibility because then uh, the one that has become very famous is called Tether, and that is backed uh, one to bank to uh, dollars. And people are using that as a medium of exchange because they know that it's like, like using dollars to pay, but in reality they're using a crypto that is now a digital representation of, of fiat um, that is supposedly in a bank account representing um, the crypto that is being traded. So, so you can see that what it's doing, and, and you don't understand what's doing now. We have a new industry, it's called decentralized finance. And decentralized finance is started by, by following the same methods of finance in the legacy world, now applied to this concept of the blockchain in the internet of value, blah, blah, blah. Real time, no intermediaries, all of that. But now, because the changes are happening so fast, we see new products being invented in this ecosystem of DeFi that has never even been invented in the traditional financial market. So imagine that the, 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 the level of change, the speed of change, it's beyond my wildest imagination. And you know, when I give a presentation, I always say to people, I bet you, you know, like I'm a baby boomer, I saw the first email. When I saw that email, I could have never imagined in 94, 95, that one day I was going to have an app called WhatsApp and I was going to press a button and be able to speak to my kids, no matter where they are in the world, and it was going to be for free. So because blockchain is at the very beginning, it's like the internet when it was created, we are just at the very beginning of seeing the innovation that this technology is going to bring to the world. And that's why I'm so scared for my generation that is not keeping up, really not keeping up in terms of understanding. And they choose to say, ah, it's Bitcoin. Ah, it's a crypto that gets used for bad things. Listen, cash is used for worse things than crypto and nobody's talking about it. But that's not the point. The point is by arguing and trying to discount the importance of this new um, developments that are happening in the world, they are going to miss out. It's like many of my contemporaries said when the computers came out, I'm not going to use a computer. I'm not going to even um, allow myself to um, learn computers. Well, I want to see who in the world does not uh, use a computer today. Who? It's impossible. And the same is going to happen to the world with techn blockchain technology. That's why the sooner people start reading and learning, the better. Um, could I just ask in terms of, and um, it's um, something people ask me, and I, I would like you to answer it. You've uh, heard, obviously, of M-Pesa, which is the um, virtual, which is the digital currency in Kenya. and. Um, 
uh, what's the um, kind of kind of relationship between a peso and a cryptocurrency? Would you call it a cryptocurrency no. or is it not? No, 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 no. In peso, it's very simple. It was, it came up as a necessity because people were frustrated that the banking system in Kenya wasn't very effective. So what they did is they started trading the airtime. That's what it, it is. Yeah. It's airtime. They're buying and selling airtime. So they created an ecosystem of airtime to pay for transactions. That's not crypto, but yeah. there are companies like, um, uh, I think it's called Paxos, that it's very strong in allowing um, um, the, a rail where you can have M-Pesa and then convert M-Pesa airtime into crypto. But yeah. trust me, so to, as you can imagine, Empresa is uh, data from the data companies, the telecoms. The telecoms control the money flows. Yep. The crypto is not controlled by anybody, and therefore that's why the, the Bitcoin maximalists love Bitcoin, because nobody can control that technology, and therefore you, you have the freedom to come out, to come in, to use it, not use it, exchange it for, for whatever you want. It, it really is a, it's a, it's a libertarian um, gift to mankind, if I have to say that. Um, but you know what? There are many currencies that have de been developed, and the one that is going to be developed soon, I can predict this, is the central bank digital currencies, which is the ones that will behave like a crypto, but will be backed by the central bank, and it will be, of course, one-to-one -to, -one to the fiat, of that country, and the reason why this is happening, I don't know if you want me to give you a little story about Libra and Facebook, but- That would but, be interesting. Okay, so so what actually happened was fascinating because I could see this happening uh, like two years ago, and I started talking to central banks saying, guys, you need to get on with the program because there's going to be public, private companies, private companies that are going to issue a crypto co uh, coin that will be utilized by the masses and eventually, if they become used to this crypto coin, they will never use the fiat that you are controlling, that helps you to establish monetary policy. And as you know, uh, through the interest rates, they control infl inflation, etc., etc. That's the role of a central bank. But here comes Libra, backed by many companies, and backed especially by Facebook, and they said, we have 2.3 billion users between Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, we will launch this Libra coin, and people in that ecosystem will only pay with Libras. Mm -hmm. So once you get into the Libra um, ecosystem, why would you want to come out? So 2.3 billion people is a lot of people. So that's when the central banks realize that either they do something about it, or they're going to become history because people don't want to stand in a queue anymore, go to a branch, wait for the money to transfer. People want to be able to have their own e-wallets and transfer cash from one person to another without ever have to go to a bank and put their money at risk. As you know, when you put your money with a bank, you have counterparty risk of the failure that the bank could go under. And therefore, people, and when I say people, I'm talking about the millennials because they get it. You know, try to get a millennial to go to a bank branch. They're going to look at you like you've gone mad. Or Absolutely. Ask them, no? Or ask them to go and buy shares in the JSE. They're going to go even more mad. 
thinking, are you crazy? I'm going to phone a broker and I'm going to uh, work in hours and weekends, they're closed. And the information, the JC doesn't release the data. You have to pay for the data. Anything that happens in the crypto world is real time information that is available in millions of websites. You can go and buy and sell and, and transfer one crypto for another, one token for another. You don't have to ask permission. Do you know how empowering that is for a, a young person? You know, that, that, you know, and you know, even you ask your kids why they don't give, they don't ask you for advice. You know why they don't ask for, for advice? Because they go to YouTube or Google and they ask Google and, and YouTube for advice. And they watch the influential people giving them the rules of the law. Uh, parents are now, we have become obsolete to them. And yeah. why? Because they look at the, the structures we built from, from the way we destroyed the climate and the earth and there's so many things. And they think, what legacy are you leaving behind? So that's why before I died, I want to try at least to help them to say, don't throw the baby with the bathwater because I still think that, you know, the Bitcoin, the, the, the baby boomers, we have something we can add value. And it's at least we've got the experience of what goes wrong or right. But of course, we cannot get in the way. We must let them invent the new world. We must just help them, you know, whenever we can. But I don't really think that we add a lot of value anymore. I'm really being honest. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that you've that you've joined a fintech uh, consensus, and it's it's uh, run by by millennials. It's mm -hmm. run by young people. Yeah. And uh, what's the sort of dynamic between you and the team at Consensus? Are you treated as a as a sort of elder, a wise elder <laughs> that they bow no. down to, or are no. you treated differently? Talk a bit about that interaction. <laughs> so I call it that I'm the pleb. I'm a pleb. I'm one of the team. You know, I'm no one. You know, who am I? I'm just someone that left blockchain and I'm, I'm there to help and, and to educate and, you know, and to try to see if we can make a difference, you know. But in reality, I, you know, I'm not the CEO of anything, you know. So, so I had to learn how to use the technology. I had to learn to find my way. That, you know, nobody tells you nothing, you know, because supposedly maybe I should have gone to YouTube and download how the technology works. I don't know. But so, and remember, when you're the CEO, you're the queen. You've got a PA, you've got a IT people, you've got everybody running around, even to the extent that in, in consensus, you because you are there's no hierarchy. So the only way to get attention on a project is you have to motivate why the project is um, worthwhile. And only then will people say, okay, I want to work in the project. So you don't, you cannot go and say you will, you know, you cannot give instructions and order and you have to convince which is amazing. I love that. You know, who am I to give orders? You know, but at straight up, trust me, I was the boss, a hundred percent. The back stops with me, and I gave orders, and it was my way or the highway in many ways. But that model, it's gone. That model doesn't work anymore. You consult mm -hmm. in the same way that blockchain wants you to consult and achieve consensus to enter the entries in the ledger. The same is the way that we as society should behave. And the most beautiful thing about Consensus, the company I work for, is that it's 
all these people from all over the world, all ages, all religions, all groups, um, from everywhere in the world, you know, and uh, and I totally love that um, yeah. that I you know that I can be you know learning. I really I, I I do hardly no talking. I try to learn more than I can than I talk because I know that I will never have the abilities um, to invent this new world in the way that they can see it. They can see it so clearly, you know. I'm still trying many times to to catch up with the language, you know, the, uh, as you know, you know, uh, technology has got its own language, you know. Um, so it's a fascinating journey and I feel privileged to work for them that they, they don't think that I'm too old to be part of the team, you know. Um, and I would um, in fact like to, to ask um, Karen, because uh, Karen works in a bank, she works at APSA doing AI, but this this world Monica is uh, describing, and and um, and clearly straight couldn't stomach this new world in terms of what it would mean for their business model, and and weren't prepared to to radicalize their technology and use blockchain, and uh, hence you left to go into your own journey. But um, Karen, in uh, terms of the bank and being a millennial working in a old legacy bank without getting yourself into trouble by saying things you shouldn't. <laughs> but, um, um, in terms of this wave that Monica describes, this new way of thinking, is there any sign of that in the bank and, and in your workplace? Oof. Mm. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say that it's a sign in, in the sense that it's it's obvious. Like if you if you look for it, sure you'll find people who don't maintain such an archaic mindset. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that like one thing I found a little bit strange is even like my age mates in in the bank still have such a strange way of like thinking about the world. And I don't know if that's just you know because of their upbringing or, or what it is because it's, it's not a matter of they didn't have access to you know to Google and to to learn and to think differently. So I don't know what that's about. But but yeah, there definitely is like this overwhelming sense of like. This is how we've always done the things, so we're going to continue to keep doing them this way, which is super bizarre. And then I think one thing that I, I think I can appreciate is that, like, you know, in South Africa, the banks are very kind of like oligarchical. <laughs> what a tough word. Um, and so, like, if one bank is like, actually, we're going to try and shake the boat, then it means that all the other banks kind of have to follow suit. And so I think that's really good um, because I know, like, FNB and Standard Bank have been trying to do more in terms of, like, thinking about things differently in terms of credit or how you act, um, engage with your customer. And I think that's been great. But yeah, no, I definitely hear and resonate and my heart is like, yes, it's so tough and you got to get out and find your people. Um, yeah. Having said that though, the AI team is super dope. And like, I, I feel like that those are kind of more my people as far as people in banking go. Yeah. Um, could I just maybe um, come back to a question to you, Monica, and that is that um, I hear your passion, I feel your passion about this, and I completely agree with you that new models are emerging and this sort of moving from the old centralized hierarchical control to a different way of working, which is facilitated by things like blockchain. But in terms of, of kind of uptake, what are you seeing in South Africa and Africa in terms of people taking this technology seriously 
and some some use cases of it being used successfully. Can you talk about some of the uptake and some of the successes in terms of this technology? So, as you know, the technology is very new. So, um, the, the first areas that um, have been implemented very successfully is anything to do with social impact. For example, there's a, a school in South Africa, um, Ushinta, um, I don't remember the name of the project, but uh, what happens is that if you want to um, um, donate money, so you put the money in the blockchain, and then you can see exactly how much of the electricity is being consumed by the, the school, and then, so you can, so the, the accounts are so transparent that, that you put the money in crypto, of course, in, in Bitcoin, directly into the school and they use the money to pay for the electricity or anything else. So that's one example. Uh, other examples uh, that we have been very successful, anything to do with supply chain. Mm -hmm. Because remember, this is uh, the beautiful technology when there's many parties and that you need to track the order trail and the provenance and the information. And, and what I love the most is that, as you know, the, the millennials love anything to do with meaning. So imagine that you now are able to track if the uh, farmer behave properly with employees, if the farmer maintain um, climate change principles, if the, if the organic uh, produce is exactly organic. All that information gets put into the blockchain and then what happens is that by the time you get to the supermarket, you have a QR code and you will go produce by produce and you'll be able to read the history of that produce, mm. where it came from, how it was planted, who planted it, you know, the, the whole two things. So you will then choose food, not by looking at it, but by the meaning of how well, and people will rate it, and people will then have the ability to, 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 to give tokens to the farmers for the right behavior in terms of the environment and whatever. And, and you will see that it will be done real time because just remember you, everybody will have their own e-wallet. So with their little finger in an app, they'll be able to allocate these crypto tokens to the farmer for, for great um, produce. Um, and then the farmer will get paid real time. And, and then remember um, many, many other things that we've done is for example, to track the, the validity of um, diamonds. Diamonds was the first, yes. one of the first cases, Everledger, if you Google that, you'll see that they, the diamond gets taken out of the mine, they get stamped through this Kimberley process, and then it gets tracked in the, in the blockchain. So by the time you get to the jewelry store, you'll know um, that those diamonds, who, who took it out, who polished it, it, the whole history, and you will know that there was no blood diamonds involved, blah, blah, blah. So everything uh, in supply chain is amazing. Then the other one is trade finance. Trade finance is this process that every time you import or export, every single ship has to have all this documentation, bill of lading, complications, delays. Imagine if you have everybody in the transaction from the time the produce gets but it you know, leaves the shop, the factory in China, until it arrives to wherever it has to arrive. If everybody can see the transaction real time, you could plan when you're gonna arrive in the port, you could plan um, you know, um, already the taxes that you have to pay, etc., etc. And then finally, the one that is the most, that you will see a big explosion of usage. And, and remember, I'm not even covering financial markets. That, that in itself is crazy what's going on. And the, um, but, uh, so the final one is really anti-corruption. 
you know, because it, this is the ideal technology so that never again the procurement process gets abused. And, and, and on the other one, once this, the central bank digital currency gets implemented, you will see that then you won't see poor old ladies standing outside the post office trying mm -hmm. to cash in on the social security, yes. which is unacceptable that we still have people waiting in a queue and then being attacked or robbed of their cash. Um, so all of that has to go. So the, the technology is there. We just need time for people to adapt and embrace it and feel as I feel, um, driven by this passion to implement it. Yeah. Cool. Um, so maybe just to, to, to take a bit of a turn, uh, I know you're a professor at UJ and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about sort of the stuff you're teaching at UJ and if you're involved in any research at the moment. Okay, just I want to clarify how this professorship happened because I have to mm -hmm. say my poor husband, he's a PhD in paleoanthropology and whatever, 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 he's going to give you a hundred titles and he started <laughs> 10 years to become uh, a PhD, okay. I don't have a PhD, I record this up front, okay. I'm just a simple uh -huh. CA, but what I did was that one day I called the university and I said, can I please have the time of all your professors in the accountancy department, I want to show them something. So I gave them a lecture on blockchain and how blockchain will change the accounting profession. So they nearly had a heart attack and they said, oh my God, you need to come and train us. So that's what I've done. I put together a course oh, um, with cool. them, you know, so it's, it's, it's an it's a online course. But for now, it's really the basics because people need time to get used to this. Um, so they gave me this title called Professor of Practice. So in return for doing this for them, they, I can use the title for three years. But um, so it's quite funny between my husband and I because he, he, he jokes, you know, that he studied 10 years to become a PhD and I go and get the professorship, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that. Really <laughs> um, could I just and we uh, need to to um, come to an end and and this and the metaphor of these podcasts is about receiving and handing over batons, and you you've you've spent your life um, handing over knowledge and mm. and um, changing and uplifting, but uh, supposing uh, that we were to put you in front of of some young people, Karen and her generation, and uh, give you a few minutes to hand over from your life experience some advice that would help them in making their choices going forward. What would you um, say to a 20-something year old who's looking at, at their future? What advice would you give? Um, the, the one thing that comes to mind, which also drove um, me was, if you can dream it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. So um, the only thing that uh, prevents you from achieving something that you dreamt is when your body doesn't cope. Like I always wanted to be an astronaut, but um, I hate heights. So <laughs> clearly wrong profession, you know? So you have to find a profession that fits not only what you want to do, but what you mm -hmm. realistic can do, okay? Um, uh, so, so that's very important. And then the other thing that I always say is that don't talk too much. Ask questions. You know, like if, if I tell you that the way I raise my children 
they would have never thought I was the CEO of anything because I never came home and told them, oh, I did this or that did that. I just spent the hours that I could spend with them asking questions and letting them find the answers, which is really what I learned from Socrates. Socrates was the wisest man in Greece and, and he's, the Socratean method is you ask questions and no, don't give, don't, don't, don't volunteer any answers because the person must work out the answers for themselves. And the truth be told is that who am I to dampen their ability to think bigger than me because the truth is that my consciousness is not as developed as the younger people that have come into a world where they are natives in technology and I wasn't. So I, so they would always have amazing ideas that I need to learn from. So I always said my, my children were my teachers and I use that wherever I go to try to ask as many questions from human beings as possible. Um, and, and that's what uh, my recommendation that's for younger people. That's fantastic advice. Yeah. So, um, thank you so much, Monica. It's been, it's um, so exciting to hear um, a person speak about future technology, call it fourth industrial revolution, whatever, but to speak about it with eagerness and enthusiasm and mm -hmm. welcoming it because we hear so much about new technology and the future that's gloom and doom. You know, robots will take our jobs and <laughs> the world will be a terrible place. So it's uh, so refreshing to hear what you have to say. And uh, you certainly put passion into into everything you do. And um, I um, I join you in this in this passion for the future. And uh, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Yeah, thank you. Th thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and, and I just want to say to everybody, may the power be with you. Yes. <laughs> thank you. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowicz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowicz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.